0: Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. for that would be of no advantage to you. Father, we do pray that you would speak tonight in our hearts through your word. Lord, we are a people completely incapable of accepting your words apart from your intervention and apart from your grace. Left to our own devices, we would be left helpless. Incapable of hearing your word, heeding your word, and obeying your word. So give us the grace we need tonight to accept this word that has come from you and help us to do so with gladness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The coddling of children and adolescents is not a new thing in our society. It's been an ongoing I would call it an epidemic for the past few decades. You can call it whatever you want. A helicopter parent, a delayed adolescence. It's all essentially the same thing. Children are never told no. Children are not given any responsibility. And when the student gets in trouble at school or gets a a B- on a test, that parent is in there fighting the cause of his or her child. You know something has gone wrong in the culture when a sprained ankle is treated as though it's a broken femur. Right? That's where we're at. When someone needs therapeutic counseling because they have been told their opinion is incorrect, you know we are headed in the wrong direction as a society. But this, this issue does not stop with children. Parents continue to treat their grown adults as though they are still children. Sure, yeah, you can live at my house until you're 25, even though you only work a part-time job and don't pay your bills. Parents hate to see their children struggle. And children have taken notice of that. And there's much we can say about this. We can comment on how it affects our culture at large. We can comment on how this is the mishandling of parents. Yet today, that's not what I want to focus on. Today, I want to point out that this issue is actually a disservice to the church. Coddling and helicopter parenting is a hindrance to you as you seek to persevere In a hostile culture. If you have been trained into thinking that you need psychiatric therapy after hearing an opinion contrary to your own, you're going to struggle when you are mocked and ridiculed for your faith. How do you think you're going to fare when you lose your job after your boss realizes that you are a devoted Christian? If you've been coddled all your life and told that you are able to do whatever you set your mind to and no one can stand in the way of you and success, the Christian life is going to be difficult for you. Because God is not in the business of coddling his children, God is not a helicopter parent. In fact, he did not even spare his own son from ridicule, from abuse, and from torture. We see this in verses 12 and 13. These two verses serve as the heartbeat in this passage. Jesus went outside of the camp to suffer at the hands of men and therefore we must follow him out the gate even if it costs us our own lives. That's the thrust of the passage. And with that in view... Let's look at our passage and and try to understand everything in in this context. First off, verse 7, we are called to remember our leaders. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Hebrews begins telling the church, if you're going to persevere in this hostile culture, you need to consider your leaders who have gone before you. Now let me just point out that most agree, most commentators agree that the leaders referred to here are those who passed away, those who have already passed away. This becomes clear when we pay attention to the tense of the verse. They spoke the word of God to this church. They used to speak it. They spoke it. And now the church is called to observe the outcome of their faith. Look at the way they lived their, their entire lives. And in fact, at the end of our passage tonight in verse 17, we're called to look at a different group of leaders. These are the present leaders. So these are the leaders who have gone before this church and who have likely died and have moved on. This leads us to believe that we need to, like they did, look at the leaders who have preceded us. Remember what they have said. Remember the way they lived. Consider the outcome of their faith. They remained faithful even to the end of their lives. So why is he asking them to remember these leaders? It could be that they suffered because of their faithfulness to the gospel. This church was in the midst of hostility and a hostile culture. They were suffering for their faith. It could be that these pastors ended up suffering to the ultimate sacrifice. But what's clear, that's not necessarily clear in this passage. That's something that we can infer. But what is clear is that what has happened in in the absence of these leaders. As these leaders have moved on, a false teaching has grown and has strengthened within this church. We see this in verse 9. He tells the, the church to avoid these diverse and strange teachings that are creeping into the church. So look back to those who led the church previously. Look at the way they taught. They did not teach these strange things. Look at the way they lived their lives. They did not live as though these strange teachings are true. So we need to consider the spiritual leaders. We need to do the same thing. We need to study church history and, and look at the way people lived their lives before us. We need to study the teachings of the saints who have gone before us. We can actually recognize false teaching Fairly quickly, when we are well acquainted with church history. So when a, a teaching arises for the first time in, in the 2,000 year history of the church, that, that should raise eyebrows. And when you understand church history and you see this is the first time this doctrine has ever reared its head, it should make that argument suspicious doesn't mean that those who have gone before us have been perfect doesn't mean that their understanding of scripture was without error but we should be at least cautious when someone brings to the table a brand new idea about scripture we'll actually see more of that as we keep going actually i think this is why verse 8 comes to our attention. Verse 8, look what we see here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, at first, this seems like a very significant truth that has almost nothing to do with the rest of the passage. That's kind of how it appears. You're like, I don't really understand what this has to do with what he just said. And unless we're reading carefully, it's hard to understand what it has to do with what he's about to say. How does this relate? Well, what was preached by the former leaders in this church does not change simply because of the fact that Christ does not change. With the new leader should not come a new message about Christ. That's because Jesus is not a shape-shifter. He does not change to neatly fit within your culture or in your situation. He's not a chameleon. He does not just blend into a specific place and time within history. With a new pastor should not come a new message about who Christ is. Jesus is not like a politician of our day who decides that, after being against an an idea for years and years and years, just decides, I'm going to change my idea on, on that specific concept because it's socially acceptable now. You see, if your understanding of Jesus fits within all of your natural preconceived ideas, then you have hijacked Christ, most likely if your concept of who Jesus is does not make you uncomfortable at times, I would argue that you are turning Jesus into an image of your own imagination. He is not a right-winged nationalist. He is not a left-wing social justice warrior. Jesus doesn't fit into the natural, cultural boxes of our day. This reality about Christ is related to what we were just saying about church history. If some new idea or new interpretation about who Jesus is or what Jesus has said shows up, it should be treated with suspicion. Christ was there for the former leaders of yesterday and he's he's still the same for us today. But here's where our culture and this concept but heads. Right now we live in a culture that is all about progress. Our culture is all about advancing forward. We want the newest thing. And when this mentality seeps into the church that we need the newest thing or we need to, to move society forward, we need to bring in new moral norms, it inevitably produces false teaching. Whether we are talking about, to hit some of the hot topic button, hot button topics of today, right? Whether we're talking about LGBTQ issues or whether we're talking about gender roles, we cannot be manipulated by the culture into altering the clear teaching of Christ. Do not be duped by the argument that this text does not apply to us anymore. Maybe it applied to them, but that was just because of their society. They were uninformed. That was just a, a product of their, their society. It does not apply to us in any way today. So many Christians manipulate the scriptures to say something that is new or novel just so that it can hap- happen to, to neatly fit within their own social agenda or their own ideas of morality. That's not the way Christ works. Tabidi Anyabwila, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., He points out that every preacher ought to be a plagiarist by nature. That's because we are not bringing anything new to the conversation. We aren't. We're taking what's here and we are repeating it. That's it. We preach an ancient message about Christ. Who was here thousands of years ago? And yet his teaching is the same even today, and it will remain the same tomorrow. And this will be hard for many of you because so many of you, like others in our society, like myself at times, we want something new. We want to think about a a novel idea. We love change, we love the idea of novelty. There are those who firmly believe and will continue to believe that the grass is always greener on the other side. Therefore, we need to push forward. But there is a danger in this mentality, and we read about it in the next couple of verses. Verses 9 through 10. Do not be led astray. Verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. But we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Because Jesus does not change, do not seek out false teachers who manipulate his words. Do not forsake the Jesus your previous leaders taught you for the Jesus, these false teachers are trying to give you. They're panhandlers. These strange and manipulative doctrines that we read about here in verses 9 through 10 are related to what we've seen throughout the course of the book of Hebrews. They were teaching that these certain foods would strengthen you. All right. So, so what's going on here? Are these guys just trying to espouse some type of veganism or something, right? Like, I mean, that that movement's caught caught hold here in our church. Is that what they're getting at? Are these teachers like health-conscious nuts who are creating these documentaries on Netflix? Is that what they're getting at? These foods, and only these foods, are going to give you strength. No, actually, he's referring to the temptation to return to the old sacrificial system. He's he's saying that these false teachers are calling the church to return to the Jewish altar and participate in those sacrifices. This is what we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews. The church is faced with a specific temptation. Partake in Christianity and at the same time accept the Jewish religion. These teachers wanted the Christians to eat from the altar... Of sacrifice as though it would provide them some sort of spiritual strength. I mean, in what ways do we fall into this same pattern of deception? I mean, I I do imagine that you aren't waking up in the morning thinking, I need to go to the sacrificial altar, I need to, to eat and get life. You want to roll with me down to the the synagogue so we can get some of that meat? I've been feeling really far from Christ. Is that the type of thing that we're tempted with? I I don't think so. That's not the conversation I think any of you are going to have too soon, right? Blair says no. Yet do we do this in our own subtle ways? I think we do. Instead of looking to Christ for strength, where do we look? couple of different ideas here. Sometimes we think that we need a, a worship experience in order to gain the spiritual energy that we need to survive. I need to, to shed some tears as I hear the drum beats steadily rise and the guitar swells fill the room. If I'm going to be strengthened in Christ, I need to repeat those same five words over and over again for five, maybe ten minutes. And the more ambiguous those five words happen to be, the better. Because then I can make them mean whatever I want. I mean, I mean just point out that repeating those same five words over and over and over again will not give you the strength to walk faithfully with Christ. Shedding a few tears as you hear the guitars strumming is not going to enable you to remain faithful Well, in the same way that we cannot depend on sacrifices for strength, we cannot depend on some sort of emotional experience to strengthen us. Now, here's another tendency that we have in the church today. I need to hear God speak to me if I am going to bear any spiritual fruit today. So I'm just going to pray and listen. Bible closed. God, what do you have to say to me? I mean, people will base their entire experience of Christianity on this sort of mentality. God, just speak. Instead of going to the word that is clear, these people just wait for some mystical voice to show up in their head. Tell them which way to go. Tell me what to do today. Right? This is a strange and diverse teaching. God has spoken once and for all to his saints through his word and looking outside of the pages of scripture for direction is setting yourself up for deception. Instead of receiving strength, you will find just that. You will find yourself deceived. So what do we actually need in order to be more faithful to Christ? We need grace. In verse 9, we find that it is good for us to be strengthened by grace. Not foods. Not some sort of experience. Not some mystical voice ringing out in our head. We are to be strengthened by grace. So you need to get on your needs and plead with God for strength. You want success in your evangelism? Seek God and beg for success. You want to, to experience success in your battle and in your fight against sin? Plead with the giver of every good gift and he will give you what you need. God's grace, let me just correct this if, if you don't understand this. God's grace is not merely the gift of salvation that we will experience one day in the future. God's grace is not limited to the idea of justification. God's grace is all-encompassing. It is the sustenance that we need to survive every waking moment of our lives as Christians. Here's the thing, though. No false teacher likes to hear that. In the next couple of verses, we begin to see that these false teachers were so committed to their cause that they would persecute those who would not comply with their message. You don't believe us that these sacrifices will give you spiritual strength? Okay, you're going to suffer the consequences. Verses 11 through 13. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Here's what he's saying just like the sacrificial animals would be burned outside of the camp, so too Jesus suffered outside the camp. And the Old Testament sacrifices the blood would be brought into the holy place, poured out on the altar, and after that the animal would be brought outside the camp to be burned. And he's pointing here to the similarity between that sacrifice and Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus also was brought outside the camp as a sacrifice. But there's more going on here. He's not only thinking about the fact that Jesus suffered as a sacrifice outside the camp, he's pointing to the fact that he suffered persecution outside of the camp. Jesus, remember, left the city of Jerusalem to suffer outside of its walls on the cross. In fact, when we read the story about Christ, we see that he was brought out of the city and he didn't just suffer as a sacrifice, he suffered as a martyr. He was tortured. And now we too are called to follow Christ outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. In other words, leave the city and suffer with Christ. Leave Jerusalem. And when you do that, when you follow Christ outside the walls of Jerusalem, you will suffer in the same way Christ did. Leave Judaism, is, this is really what he's saying. You leave Judaism and follow Christ. And when you do that, you need to do so expecting to suffer in the same way that Christ did. You will bear the reproach that he endured. And we actually experience the same thing today, but in a quite different way. When you make the break with the ways of this world, it will so often result in suffering. We follow Christ outside of the camp to suffer. God does not coddle his children, he calls them to sacrifice. Leave the benefits of being associated with this world for Christ, even if it costs you your life. Because when you break with the establishment of this world, you can expect to suffer. Maybe it's social estrangement, right? You lose your friends. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe you get a job at a tech company in San Francisco and the moment you hear, they hear that you are a Christian, they cut you from the payroll. This is why we read in 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. When we follow Christ outside of the camp, we become sojourners. We become exiles because the place we are living is not our home. We may live here in this culture and in this society, but in a real way, this is not our culture and our society. This is not our kingdom, even though we dwell within its walls. We dwell in a different kingdom, ultimately. As those who follow Christ, we run the risk of losing everything for his name's sake. And we read about that very thing here. The Hebrews, the, or the author of Hebrews is calling this church to suffer, leave the camp and die with Christ. Like I said, presumably, this is exactly what happened to the former leaders in the church. But we can have confidence when we leave this camp because we know what god has accomplished on our behalf you see when we bear the the reproach of christ we can actually do so with hope knowing that god is calling us to a better kingdom verse 14 for we have no lasting for here we have no lasting city but we seek a a city that is to come So we can go into suffering with boldness and with determination because we know we have a city that is lasting. We have seen this throughout the book of Hebrews, right? There's this continual reminder. We can find hope in the future promises of the gospel and we better not try to find our hope here and now. But we are so quick to seeking hope hope in the things of this world. I need a better job. I need more vacation. I need a better sex life. I need more freedom. I need a better car. I need a better house. Yet all of these needs and hopes will leave us empty. I got a 5% raise. And I'm going to be totally happy if I never receive another raise for the rest of my life. Said no one ever. This world and the things of this world do not satisfy in any lasting way. The moment you get the raise, you're looking for your next one. The moment you get the 5% increase, you're wondering when it's going to turn to 10. It's because the things of this world will not satisfy you in any lasting way. What we look forward to are not the earthly goals in this world. We look forward to a future city to come. But we need to recognize the danger of living for these earthly goals here in this world. When you live for these sorts of situational hopes, you're going to place yourself in situations that inevitably leave you morally cornered. I want a raise, but to get a raise, I need to break with my clear Christian convictions as related to morality. I need to cheat, I need to lie, and I need to cut corners in order to get that raise. Well, here's the thing. When you are living for the things of this world, when you are living with your hopes set on this world, you're going to do just that. You're going to cheat you're gonna lie you're gonna cut corners but when we recognize that we are not living for the sake of this world we're living for an eternal home we can be okay with never getting the five percent raise in our entire lives that can change our entire perspective we can put up with the mocking and the belittling we can put up with even losing a job for the sake of the gospel That is the type of sacrifice that God is calling us to. One of devotion to Christ. So don't participate in these false sacrifices that will not benefit you. Participate in this sacrifice that God is calling you towards. We see this idea of true sacrifice further explained in verses 15 and 16. Through him then... Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He is correct. This misunderstanding uh, is infiltrating the church. We we do not need these sacrificial ceremonies in order to offer sincere sacrifices. But we are called to sacrifice. We're called to sacrifice in the form of praise and in the form of good works. We do still offer God sacrifices, but these aren't animal sacrifices. This is doing good. This is sharing what you have. If you want to offer acceptable sacrifices to God, then give your belongings, give your time to those in need. This is similar to what we saw last week when we heard about hospitality, true Christian biblical hospitality, which offers a sacrifice to God by giving time and possessions to those in need. Now, I want to go on a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's worth going on. Let's put ourselves in the minds of the Hebrews for a moment. For some of them, the reason they were being tempted into offering animal sacrifices was because they were becoming fearful of what may happen to them if they forsake Judaism. If I I forsake my, my Jewish heritage, I will suffer. And yet it's likely, I think we see this in the book of Galatians, that there were others in the church who were being tempted to think that they need to offer these sacrifices because these sacrifices somehow made them more spiritually holy or spiritually acceptable in God's sight. If you are more spiritual, You're going to keep coming to the altar and offering sacrifice. Notice those are two different mindsets. Those are two different driving motives. One is motivated by fear, whereas the other is not motivated by fear, but motivated by this hope of being more godly or more pious. You know, sometimes we fall into a similar mindset. If I just do these things, then I will become more pleasing to God. If I live this type of lifestyle, then God will find me more acceptable. We hear these sorts of lies in our culture. I mean, our culture is not telling us to sacrifice a goat in order to please God, but we do hear other lies. For instance, we may hear that God is more pleased with the missionary than he is with the typical member of the church who works nine to five and has a family. Is that true? Is God more pleased with the missionary than he is with your average church member who's faithful to God? No. Hebrews says no. This is minimalist Christianity that Hebrews is espousing, right? That's a cool word, right? Be minimalist. Well, here's how you can be a minimalist Christian. God is pleased when you simply adore Christ in worship and sacrifice for your brothers in need. Put it another way, love God and love your neighbor. That is simple, minimalist Christianity. But our generation finds it so attractive that in order to please God, we need to sell everything we own and move to a third world country on the other side of the globe. Move to Calcutta. Serve the orphans if you really want to please God. Okay, yeah, sir, you you serve in the nursery. I guess that's cool. But I serve the orphans. And we walk around with this spiritual pride and arrogance that does not please God. Let's put it simply. That sort of arrogance and pride does not please God. Although God is pleased with that sort of sacrifice, leaving your family, moving across the globe, serving the orphans, God is also pleased with the individual who lives a quiet and sacrificial life to the glory of God in her own hometown. I got a couple of family friends for you to consider. First, Tyler and Jenna. They have three children They're from Arkansas. They've uprooted their family to move overseas and serve as missionaries in a remote region of China. He was a physical therapist and now he's leaving that lucrative job to be a missionary in a random city that you've never heard of. Mark and Holly. They grew up in Louisville. They still live there. Mark uh, works a full-time job, and Holly takes care of the children. Mark sacrifices his time by volunteering uh, to run the sound at the church. Holly oversees a lot of the hospitality ministries that the church offers, oversees the church's monthly potluck dinners. So are Tyler and Jenna more spiritual because they took their family to China? Are they more spiritual? Or is God more pleased with them because they have the title missionary attached to their name? No. God is pleased with us when we are faithful. Adore Christ, serve others. It's not a radical call. It's not a call to leave and go to the other side of the globe, although that may be a good thing to do. But God is pleased with those who trust Christ, worship Christ, and serve Christ's body. All right, let's come back from this rabbit trail that was somewhat sort of related to the passage. Go to verse 17. In verse 17, we are called to submit to our leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Christians are called to worship God, to serve na- their neighbor, and to be devoted to the local church. Submit to your leaders. Notice how he's returning back to the idea of submitting to the leaders in the church. Earlier he was speaking about those who were the previous leaders in the church, and now he's calling these church members to obey the current ones. We've considered the former leaders. We've considered the suffering of Christ. Now walk in obedience to your current leaders. Look at how he's bringing this idea of forsaking Christ up yet again in the book of Hebrews. Over and over again, we have been reminded of the consequences that come when we forsake Christ. And yet here, he brings it up again with a bit of a twist. If you forsake Christ by turning from Him, then you are putting yourself and your spiritual leaders in jeopardy. You're putting your leaders in a difficult situation when you forsake Christ for the sacrificial altar. You're putting your leaders in a a difficult situation when you decide, I don't want to suffer for the sake of Christ. I'd rather stay tied to the things of this world your leaders will have to give an account for you. And there's a weightiness in this, right? There's a weightiness when it comes to being a leader in ministry. Christ says that he will leave the 99 sheep and go after the one. And he expects the same from his pastors. Mark Dever has pointed this out. As a pastor, it's tempting to say today was great, We had 30 more people here tonight than we had last week. I mean, that seems like a good thing, but what Dever points out is that sometimes we celebrate those 30 without even recognizing that two people aren't showing up anymore. It's easy to be excited about growth and not give a second thought to the fact that one person has left the fold the leaders of the church will be put on the spot regarding those in their care. I just want to let you know that for me is a weighty reality that I cannot ignore. Neither can any of the other pastors here ignore that. Hebrews is saying because this is true, you should honor and submit to your leaders so that they may have a joyful time of ministry, not a begrudging one. This means for the sake of your soul and for the sake of the pastor, you should follow Christ outside the camp, even be willing to suffer. You know, I've only been here for a little while over a year but I have to say that it is an encouraging and a joyful thing to see individuals growing in Christ before my eyes. I've seen growth take place in in specific individuals in this ministry over the past year, and that is a joy for me to see. And I'm telling you, it will be a joy for me in that moment to stand before God and to give an account for those who are growing in Christ. Let's pray. God, we reflect on these realities and and though they are weighty in ways, they are also joyful.